Good evening, class. Have a listen to this music and see if you have any idea what we might be listening to and why. Any guesses? I'll actually be surprised if anyone knows what this is because it's a little obscure, but it is wonderful. Okay, well, I could keep listening to that. I'll send you the link. Uh, it is, as you might suspect, another one of the great English choirs singing. This one is the choir of Clare College uh, under the direction of Sir David Wilcox, one of the great choral arrangers of the 20th century. And the piece that they're singing is actually by Rafe Vaughn Williams, whom we've talked about before, whom Lewis actually knew. Uh, but the piece is called Folk Songs of the Four Seasons. And in this evening's letter, we're going to be hearing a little bit about the seasons and how God has created them with this beautiful rhythm and how that drives screw tape crazy. So uh, before we launch into that, let's begin with the word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of the screw tape letters. We thank you for the wisdom that is contained in these letters about what it means to live a boldly Christian life. Lord, we pray that you would bless our time together this evening, that you would use these words in your scripture to show us what it means to follow Jesus more and more closely so that we might live for the praise and glory of his name, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, uh, I am delighted to be with you tonight as we engage this letter 25, which is another one of my favorite letters out of uh, this whole book. And Part of what I love about this letter is that, once again, it is unbelievably relevant for the times in which we live and many of the issues that we face as a culture. So as we begin, uh, let's start off by saying together our verse from Ephesians, and I would encourage you to say that aloud with me. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as your shoes, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, by which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And as we have said before, this verse is unbelievably appropriate, not just for the screw tape letters, but for Christians living in this world where we do have an enemy. 
Which brings me again to why are we studying this? It's so important to keep this in front of us all the time. First, to remind ourselves that we are in the battle and we need to understand the battle because one of Satan's chief schemes is to try to convince us that there is no battle, that there is no evil, that there is no devil, and we can just go about our business. So remembering and understanding that we're in a battle is key. Secondly, thinking Christianly and developing a Christian worldview. Thinking is dangerous business, as the old proverb says, and we are all too prone to not think, to just be led by whatever the prevailing trend of the culture is. But as Christians, we are called to love God with our mind, and that means thinking and thinking Christianly. Thirdly, lessons on understanding the psychology of temptation. If we know how Satan is going to attack and what some of his methods are, we're much more likely to be able to recognize them. And it is uh, one of the great stories about Screwtape that one time Lewis was asked, uh, after the book had come out, if he had done a lot of study in the field of behavioral psychology and whether he had done academic work in psychiatry and some of those things. And of course, Lewis said that people forget that there is a much less creditable way to learn about temptation, which is actually to have experienced it. Fourth, the book is full of lessons on what it means in terms of habits to cultivate a deep faith in Christ. These habits are so very important, and there's a subtext about habits all the way through this book. And therefore, we are looking for habits that will annoy the devil. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, lessons on what it means to live a boldly Christian life, a life where we are all in, a life where we are making a difference for the gospel and where our lives count for the kingdom of God. As we've talked about before, habits are the basis of so much of what it means to resist the devil. Scripture tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from you. But if we have no tools at our disposal, then we are often helpless. And that is why these habits are so very important. So we will be talking about some more habits to develop to annoy the devil this evening. So just by way of review, uh, some of the habits that we've looked at recently as we have talked about uh, the patient that Screwtape is after, and uh, particularly this patient who is now in love with this Christian girl who has a strongly Christian family and lives in a strongly Christian household, we are getting a lot of insight about why those things are so annoying to Screwtape and his father below, the devil. So from letter 21, that great letter about peevishness. The first habit is to cultivate good humor and kindness and flee from peevishness. We are all set to complain at the drop of a hat. Uh, it's remarkable how much complaining goes on in our culture, uh, no matter what our circumstances are. There's a lot of complaining now in these unusual times, but even before that, uh, when things seem to be bumping along as usual, we still found plenty to complain about. But Christians should be characterized by good humor and by kindness, and not by being peevish. That is, easily offended and prone to complain. One of the things that is so important as Christians is that we learn what it means to speak life. And speaking life means speaking joy and modeling the fruit of the Spirit. And complaining is not one of the fruit of the Spirit. The second habit, view life and each day, each hour, and indeed each moment as a gift from God rather than an entitlement. Again, this is something that we cannot be reminded of too often because we live 
in a world where entitlement is part of the air that we breathe. We believe we are owed so many different things. And in fact, scripture tells us that is not the case uh, and that we are not even owed our life. And so when we begin to uh, develop a mindset that is a mindset of gratitude, a mindset of being awestruck with wonder at the gift of life and how precious it is, uh, that makes us move away from entitlement toward seeing that these things are gifts from God. Thirdly, we are to cultivate a framework for our life that is based on stewardship rather than ownership as the underlying principle. And this runs all the way through scripture from Genesis to Revelation. But we're again, all too prone to forget this. We believe that we are the owners, not the stewards, and therefore we are in charge, that we are the CEOs, or perhaps more aptly, the absolute emperors of our own lives. And how dare anyone, including God, suggest that that might not be the case. So cultivating a framework for our lives, the assumptions and values that underlie our actions and our thoughts, that framework based on stewardship under the ownership of God is incredibly important. Fourthly, from letter 21, consider daily the fact that you are not your own, but that you are in service to the Lord. Remember that your body and the very breath of life within it are not your own, but God's creation and possession, and do not surrender them to Satan's conquest. We are all too prone to forget that not only are we stewards, but that we are in service. We have a commanding officer, as it were. Uh, we belong to Jesus Christ. This is one of the habits that I love out of that book we've talked about by Justin Early, The Common Rule. One of the habits that's suggested in that book is the first foundational habit is to kneel in prayer three times a day. The instant that we wake up in the morning to kneel down and acknowledge that we belong to Jesus and offer our lives to him, to stop what we're doing at noon and kneel down for just a few minutes and again acknowledge that we belong to Jesus. And then at the end of the day, before we go to bed, to kneel down and acknowledge again that we are the Lord's. This is a powerful, physical, outward and visible sign of the inward and spiritual grace, acknowledging that we are not our own and we are in service to the Lord. Fifthly, from that letter, be wary of using the word mine. Uh, if you spend any time around toddlers, uh, preschoolers, uh, and even elementary school students, you will very often hear the word mine yelled out in anger on a regular basis. And Lewis in this letter, uh, through the mouth of Screwtape, says that is to be encouraged. Because as soon as we start thinking of things as mine, uh, whether it is our possessions or uh, whatever, it's very easy to move from thinking these are my shoes and my dog to start thinking of our family as belonging to us in the same way that our shoes do, and then even God himself, and thinking that we have the right to control them, to do with them whatever we want. And that, of course, is not the case. Habits from letter 22. Seek deep Christian commitment as the most important quality in dating relationships. It is all too easy for Christians to buy into the world standards of saying it doesn't matter what you believe. And people who may be deeply rooted in the Christian faith sometimes find themselves attracted in dating and then enter into relationships with people who are not Christians. And the problem with that is that that relationship is on an unequal foundation that can never survive. Uh, it will never enable either person uh, to be the fullness of what God desires for them. So part of the deal here is that as Christians, we are to seek 
other Christians when we are in dating relationships. And the reason for that is it makes the devil crazy. Uh, you'll remember that Screwtape's reaction to this Christian dating a deeply Christian girl is the most severe of any of his reactions other than when the patient actually becomes a Christian because it forms a bulwark against Satan and it also prevents that kind of undermining of faith that slow drip 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 erosion that comes when a Christian is in a relationship with someone who is not a believer. Secondly, live joyfully into the bounty of pleasures that God has created. It is a reminder to us that God is the author of pleasure. Uh, as in Psalm 46, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And this again makes Satan crazy. He hates the idea that uh, hell has been able to not invent a single pleasure. And all they can do is to encourage humans to twist pleasures or take them in some way that God has forbidden. And the result is that Satan hates it when Christians enjoy the bounty that God has given us. Thirdly, cultivate a family and home deeply infused with the love of Christ, beauty, and agape love for others. This is the way the household of this girl is described in letter 22, and Screwtape just can't stand it. He's infuriated by it. He hates the impenetrable cloud, uh, the presence of the Holy Spirit that hangs over it, and he hates the fact that this home is a manifestation of and a beacon for the gospel of Jesus Christ. People who come into this home and its beauty and its peace and its love wonder what makes it so special, what that tangible quality of difference is that they can feel, and it changes them. And Screwtape hates this. So therefore, the more that we can cultivate homes that are like that, places of beauty and peace and selfless love and service, um, that is something that will cause the kingdom of God to advance. Fourthly, glory and the beauty and wonder of music. This is the letter where Screwtape says, music and silence, how I detest them both. So we as Christians should all the more lean into music. Uh, some of you got the email if you were on the email list uh, of the devotional Jane Gurley shared with me about joy and Vivaldi's The Four Seasons. And just the wonder and beauty that's in that and how that can refresh us in our relationship with God. And that's just a reminder as well that I should say to those of you that are listening uh, on the podcast or checking out the video, if you're not on our email list where you get the summary each week and the uh, links and uh, articles for going deeper, uh, please send me an email at St. Phillips. Uh, if you go to stphilipschurchsc.org on the web or just Google St. Phillips Charleston, our website will come up and you can click right through to me and uh, ask me to add you to the email list and I will be delighted to do that. So the beauty and wonder of music is a great thing to be devoted to uh, because it fires our hearts uh, to think about who is the author of this beauty, not just the composer and the performer, but who it is that created music in the first place. And it turns our hearts toward God. And the next habit related to that is to embrace the beauty and wonder of silence. We live in such a noisy world and deliberately stepping away from that and stepping into silence to listen for the still small voice of God, to listen to the beautiful sounds of God's creation all around us. This silence can feed our souls. It can enable us to think about the spiritual world, which is so much more real than those tangible things that are passing away. Sixth, reject being surrounded constantly by sound and noise. This again is where habits come into play. If you live in a household where the habit is to turn on the TV or the radio 
or Spotify or whatever it might be, the instant that you wake up and keep some sort of sound going all the time, or if your habit is to go only to restaurants that have multiple TV screens going all the time, I would encourage you to re-examine your habits and to put in place some habits that will enable you to embrace some times of silence. Silence and contemplation are part of our heritage as Christians. We are all too quick to cede that territory to the Buddhist and the New Agers, uh, but we were there first. Uh, there is a long tradition of silence and contemplation of Scripture and the beauty of the Lord that we need to reclaim. And then lastly, remember that transformation is the work of the Holy Spirit, not of our own efforts and not of the life force. So often we hear our culture telling us that we need to create ourselves, to find our truths, to find our voice and speak our truths, to create ourselves. But that is not what scripture tells us. Scripture tells us that we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices, open to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, and that it is his work to transform us, not our own work. And it is not the work of the life force, uh, that uh, mysterious power that we are told lurks in the cosmic goo that makes everything happen uh, because there is no God in that secular worldview. But instead, as Christians, we are to open our hearts and our souls and our bodies to the transforming presence of the Holy Spirit. That brings us to letter 23. And the first habit there is to get to know and spend time with deeply committed, intelligent Christians. We're going to touch again on this in the letter tonight, but remember, Screwtape is appalled because in this girl's household, uh, their circle of friends who's in and out of the house, they are deeply committed Christians, and they are deeply engaged in sharing about their faith and encouraging one another, and encouraging one another to go deeper in what it means to love God with their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength. We need to embrace that, and it means more than just being around Christians. It means being proactive about what we talk about, think about, and do together. Secondly, be watchful about mixing theology and politics. We've talked in that letter about how Jesus never engaged politics, or rarely. He says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and that's about it. Uh, even though he lived in a horribly oppressive government regime where there was an occupying army, uh, where people had no rights or any of that, but he focused on sharing the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of heaven, because that's the kingdom that really matters. Thirdly, beware of new constructions of the historical Jesus. This is the whole idea that uh, the gospel writers didn't really get it right, um, and that we need to recover the real truth about Jesus, and that Jesus was just a teacher, and people decided later that he was the Messiah for their own ends, a la the Da Vinci Code. Um, all of that stuff is ridiculous, and it is all too easy for Christians to be tricked into uh, believing some of these crazy myths. Fourth, focus on our relationship with Jesus in worship and his real presence and the sacraments and with other believers, not just on his teaching. To be a Christian does not mean to simply follow Jesus's teaching. You'll remember that Gandhi, who was not a Christian, considered the Sermon on the Mount to be the most sublime teaching in the history of the world. But that didn't mean he was a Christian. Christian means being in relationship with Christ, and we need to focus on that. Fifthly, hold fast to the centrality of Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead and God's plan of redemption at the core of your faith. Those are the world-changing things that set the world on fire with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Sure, Jesus' teaching is wonderful and it is how we should pattern our lives, but the core of the faith is who Jesus is and what he did on the cross and how God raised him again from the dead that we might live with him forever in his kingdom. Sixthly, live proactively each day in the understanding of Christ's kingdom as the truth and the overarching reality of your life. It is all too easy to be seduced in seeing Christianity as a means to an end for some cause, as we'll hear in the letter tonight as well. And then from letter 24, be wary about making assumptions about those who do not share your beliefs. We live in a time where unfortunately many of us as Christians have become strident and unloving and judgmental in our actions toward those who are not Christians. Certainly we need to stand up for the truth, but scripture tells us we are to speak the truth in love. And all too often what I hear and see and sometimes even what I think myself isn't coming from a place of love. And we need to be honest with that and take that to the foot of the cross and repent. Secondly, beware of spiritual pride as one of the devil's strongest vices. Uh, the degree of glee that we see from Screwtape about spiritual pride is on the same level as the level of horror that we see from him about the patient becoming a Christian or being in a relationship with this Christian girl. The vice of spiritual pride turns us into Pharisees. And of course, you know uh, from reading the scriptures that the Pharisees are the ones who took the very Son of God and delivered him over to the Romans to be crucified. Lord, help us to never be the ones that are against Jesus because of our own spiritual pride. Third, cultivate humility. Much easier said than done, and an awareness of your own unworthiness, but for Christ. Uh, as it is said by Jesus himself, the one who is forgiven much loves much. And if you find that you are not very loving toward those who differ from you, perhaps you may want to go back and consider all of the things for which Christ has forgiven you, all of the ways that you fall short, and the miracle of his grace and love in your life. Because when you get a hold of that and are overwhelmed with the wonder of it, it is much easier to have a merciful and compassionate heart. Fourthly, flee from embracing any sort of superior inner ring. Uh, in the email from last week that I sent out, uh, there's Lewis's essay about the inner ring. And it's interesting, when he was giving the lecture uh, from which that essay was developed, uh, in King's College, London in 1944. That was very soon, within um, 18 months or so, after the publication of the Screwtape Letters. So I think this idea is one that continued to resonate with him throughout his life. And so often for us, we want to be in the know, and uh, particularly if that means that we can make other people feel like they are not in the know. It starts on the playground if not before. And as Christians, we need to resist that. And as Lewis tells us, to flee from it. And then fifthly, flee from the temptation to believe that those who agree with you in every small particular are the only real Christians. Again, it is so important that we do stand for the truth, and particularly we stand for the truth of God's word, but in those areas where there are legitimate differences between Christians, not areas of core doctrine, but where there are legitimate differences about things, it is so important that we not think we are superior. That is the sin of the Pharisees. And again, it is all too easy for those of us who are evangelical and orthodox to fall into that error and be smug about it rather than being loving and merciful to those whose views differ from our own. And that brings us to letter 25. Letter 25 is great because it introduces several 
key concepts that um, really help unlock a lot of Lewis's work, not just in this uh, particular book, but in others. And work of Lewis's that I think reflects a profoundly Christian understanding of the world and what it means to live as a Christian in the world, but not of the world. So get out your books, uh, pull out your highlighter, and be ready as we jump in to letter 25. Here we go. My dear Wormwood, the real trouble about the set your patient is living in is that it is merely Christian. They all have individual interest, of course, but the bond remains mere Christianity. What we want, if men must become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the crisis, Christianity and the new psychology, Christianity and the new world order, Christianity and faith healing, Christianity and psychical research, Christianity and vegetarianism, Christianity and spelling reform. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Work on their horror of the same old thing. The horror of the same old thing is one of the most valuable passions we have produced in the human heart. An endless source of heresies in religion, folly in counsel, infidelity in marriage, and inconstancy in friendship. The humans live in time and experience reality successively. To experience much of it, therefore, they must experience many different things. In other words, they must experience change. And since they need change, the enemy, being a hedonist at heart, has made change pleasurable to them, just as he has made eating pleasurable. But since he does not wish them to make change any more than eating, an end in itself he has balanced the love of change in them by a love of permanence. He has contrived to gratify both tastes together in the, on the very world he has made by that union of change and permanence, which we call rhythm. He gives them the seasons, each season different, yet every year the same, so that spring is always felt as a novelty, yet always as the recurrence of an immemorial theme. He gives them in his church a spiritual ear. They change from a fast to a fast, but it is the same feast as before. Now, just as we pick out and exaggerate the pleasure of eating to produce gluttony, so we pick out this natural pleasantness of change and twist it into a demand for absolute novelty. This demand is entirely our own workmanship. If we neglect our duty, men will not only be contented, but transported by the mixed novelty and familiarity of snowdrops in January, sunrise this morning, plum pudding this Christmas. Children, until we have taught them better, will be perfectly happy with a seasonal round of games in which Conkers succeeds hopscotch as regularly as autumn follows summer. Only by our incessant efforts is the demand for infinite or unrhythmical change kept up. This demand is valuable in various ways. In the first place, it diminishes pleasure while increasing desire. The pleasure of novelty is by its very nature more subject than any other to the law of diminishing returns. 
and continued novelty cost money, so that the desire for it spells avarice or unhappiness or both. And again, the more rapacious this desire, the sooner it must eat up all the innocent sources of pleasure and pass on to those that the enemy forbids. Thus, by inflaming the horror of the same old thing, we have recently made the arts, for example, less dangerous to us than perhaps they have ever been. Lowbrow and highbrow artists alike now being daily drawn into fresh and still fresh excesses of lasciviousness, unreason, cruelty, and pride. Finally, the desire for novelty is indispensable if we are to produce fashions or vogues. The use of fashions in thought is to distract the attention of men from their real dangers. We direct the fashionable outcry of any, each generation against those vices of which it is least nearly gunnel under. Thus, we make it fashionable to expose the dangers of enthusiasm. Finally, the desire for novelty is indispensable if we are to produce fashions or vogues. The use of fashions is thought to distract the attention of men from their real dangers. We direct the fashionable outcry of each generation against those vices of which it is least in danger and fix its approval on the virtue nearest to that vice which we are trying to make endemic. The game is to have them running around with fire extinguishers whenever there is a flood and all crowding to that side of the boat which is already nearly gunnel under. Thus we make it fashionable to expose the dangers of enthusiasm at the very moment when they are all really becoming worldly and lukewarm. A century later, when we are really making them all Byronic and drunk with emotion, the fashionable outcry is directed against the dangers of the mere understanding. Cruel ages are put on their guard against sentimentality, feckless and idle ones against respectability, lecherous ones against puritanism. And whenever all men are really hastening to be slaves or tyrants, we make liberalism the real bogey. But the greatest triumph of all is to elevate his horror of the same old thing into a philosophy, so that nonsense in the intellect may reinforce corruption in the will. It is here that the general evolutionary or historical character of modern European thought, partly our own work, comes in so useful. The enemy loves platitudes. Of a proposed course of action, he wants men, so far as I can see, to ask very simple questions. Is it righteous? Is it prudent? Is it possible? Now, if we can keep men asking, is it in accordance with the general movement of our time? Is it progressive or reactionary? Is this the way that history is going? They will neglect the relevant questions. As a result, the questions that they do ask are, of course, unanswerable, for they do not know the future, and what the future will be depends very largely on just those choices which they now invoke the future to help them make. As a result, while their minds are buzzing in this vacuum, we have the better chance to slip in and bend them to the action we have decided on. And great work has already been done. Once they knew that some changes were for the better, and others for the worse, 
and still others were indifferent. We have largely removed this knowledge. For the descriptive adjective unchanged, we have substituted the emotional adjective stagnant. We have trained them to think of the future as the promised land which favored heroes attain, not as something which everyone who everyone reaches at the rate of 60 minutes an hour, whatever he does, whoever he is. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Well, there is a lot of stuff in this letter and so much to think about. And as we look at these habits, you'll see some things that if you've read some of Lewis's other work uh, will resonate with you. So this first habit, center your bond of fellowship deeply in your common faith in Jesus Christ. And here we have some scripture from 1 John 1. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things that your joy may be complete. And then from Ephesians 4, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What Lewis is telling us in this letter is that it annoys the heck out of the devil when the great bond that defines our friendship with other Christians, our deep fellowship with them, is mere Christianity. That our common faith in Jesus, our love for him, our desire to worship and obey him and to serve him, brings us joy and is the joy that is shared among us when we are together. And of course, that phrase, mere Christianity, might sound familiar as the title of Lewis's great book that was made out of his broadcast talks during World War II. Uh, I want to take a little bit of a detour here and just talk about that, uh, because mere Christianity is a very key concept in Lewis's work and thought, and I would suggest in understanding scripture as well. It's the phrase that Lewis employed to describe essential Christianity, those beliefs that have been held by all Christians, Protestant or Catholic, through the ages, the core of Christianity. And Lewis uh, took this term, it's not one he invented, uh, but it came from Richard Baxter, who was one of the great Protestant Anglican clergymen, uh, part of that Puritan movement uh, that took place in the 17th century. Baxter lived from 1615 to 1691 and was quite a prolific author and really a theological genius. He wrote nearly 200 works during his lifetime and it is a great shame that he is out of vogue right now. Of course, Screwtape is probably laughing about that, thinking about the letter in which mere Christianity is mentioned is the letter that talks about throwing out things from the past, encouraging vogues and novelty. Uh, but one of the interesting things about Baxter is that he was a great favorite of William Wilberforce, that great 18th century and early 19th century Christian statesman who abolished the slave trade, uh, who was the protege of John Newton, uh, and whose life is told in that great movie, Amazing Grace. So in Richard Baxter's work, History of the Government of Bishops, probably not the greatest page turner you've ever read, uh, written in 1680, he says these words, I am a Christian a mere Christian, of no other religion, and the church that I am of is the Christian church, and hath been visible wherever the Christian church and religion have been visible. But must you know what sect and party I am of? I am against all sects and all dividing parties. 
This is the emphasis that Lewis loved about mere Christianity. It emphasizes the unity around the core doctrines of Christian faith and keeps us focused together on Jesus instead of focused on our differences and fighting each other. And this also relates to Lewis's idea about fellowship, an idea he expands much more in his great book, The Four Loves. Uh, he talks about how Christian fellowship is beyond even friendship. It is a beautiful way of modeling friendship love and agape love together. But it is something we must live into. Christians can be in the same room with one another over and over again and never experience fellowship. And there's a great anecdote I'd love to share with you from the great uh, pastor and teacher, J. Vernon McGee. And when he talks about Christian fellowship, he says, sure, it's natural that as Christians, sometimes we'll talk about the weather or the news or sports or whatever it might be. And he says, there's nothing wrong with talking about such things, but if it just stays there, we will never experience real fellowship. He talks about once having gone to a Rotary meeting and I'm a big Rotary fan. My dad and grandfather were Paul Harris fellows and active in Rotary, but Rotary is not Christianity. It's not the church. And the banner at this Rotary Club meeting said, food, fun, fellowship. He said the food was nothing to brag about, embalmed chicken and nasty peas. The fun was a few corny jokes. The fellowship consisted of one man patting another on the back and saying, hi, Bill, how's business? Or how's the wife? That was their idea of fellowship. McGee goes on to say that what is called Christian fellowship, unfortunately, often isn't any different from that. We get together for a potluck supper and we talk about everything under the sun except what would provide true fellowship. That is what we share together in Christ, Christ's call on us as Christians, what it means to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. True Christian fellowship centers on fellowship with Christ, that when two or three are gathered together in his name, he is there in the midst of them. So center your bond of fellowship deeply in your common faith in Jesus Christ. Second, beware of letting your faith get co-opted by any cause you may embrace. 1 Corinthians 2. For I determined to know nothing, I determined to not know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then Romans 14. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And then from Hebrews 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. What Lewis is getting at in the Screwtape letters, and what Screwtape understands so well, is that our preferences and the things that we get interested in can get mixed up with our faith so that we make, again, like politics, the cause or the interest uh, subservient, or rather we make our faith subservient to that cause or interest. It is no longer mere Christianity. It's Christianity, and my favorite one, spelling reform, which actually was a real thing in Lewis's day. And it is um, a good word to us that sometimes we hold so deeply to things we're interested in that they cause our brother to stumble because they might not share that interest. And our faith seems to have such an identity with the interest that we can't tell them apart. So don't let your faith get co-opted by a cause or an interest, no matter how valuable that cause or interest may be. Thirdly, enjoy the rhythm and predictability of each season with its unique blessings. And from uh, Ecclesiastes, famously, for everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. 
and then from Genesis 8, right back at the very beginning. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Seasons are part of the way God has made creation and made us. And although we may like the seasons uh, that we see in the weather, um, and maybe even the seasons of the church year, we're maybe not so appreciative of the seasons of life. We want to stay in that season where we are young and fit and good looking and uh, thought of as capable and desirable. Uh, we don't like necessarily that season of getting older, uh, of seeing our children leave the house and being empty nesters. Or on the other end, we can be as students not very happy about being in that season of life and wanting to be adults where we have real jobs and real life and all of those things. Uh, we are not prone to focus on the joys of each season in which we find ourselves. But what Lewis is reminding us through Screwtape uh, is that when we fail to embrace the wonder and joy of seasons, we play into the devil's hand. We start becoming complainers. We become, dare I say it, peevish. And the result of that is that we miss the blessings that God wants to give us in that season. And then fourthly, uh, the fourth habit, avoid the horror of the same old thing and reject the incessant quest for novelty. So much scripture revolves around this principle. Uh, so this first one uh, from Hebrews 13, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. And then from 2 Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. My friends, is this not one of the most important truths that we can see out of the screw tape letters because our culture has bought into this lock, stock, and barrel. We have a horror of the same old thing. Uh, usually we think about that in terms of fashions. We've seen this jokes during the pandemic about the fact that uh, you can't get a haircut and shaggy hair and going to drive in movies is all the vogue. And uh, you know, you see some of those little memes that say the hippies have finally won. But the problem for many of us is that we do embrace that and we think we're on this train of progress and that each generation is going to be better off and better educated and more enlightened than the ones before and that therefore we should throw out the entire accumulated wisdom of the human race in favor of, of embracing things that are new. The problem with that is that it then carries over into our spiritual life and the things that are old and eternal, changeless as the rock, we throw those things out. The Word of God, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, they can begin to seem quaint, antiquated, out of date. Maybe they were fine in their way during their time, 
But we've moved on from that, haven't we? We've learned to be so much more enlightened. I mean, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. They didn't have cars and planes and the internet. What could he really have known about life now? So we need to supplement what he said. Maybe pick out some good parts, but um, realize that the things that are new, that are based on research, uh, are better. Lewis expands this horror of the same old thing in many other writings of his, but it is a key thing for us as Christians to think about and to reject wholeheartedly. One of the best things we can do as Christians is to reclaim what previous generations of Christians knew, which is that soaking ourselves in scripture learning to model our lives after the example of the apostles and the saints is salutary. It used to be that all Christians, as they were growing up in Christian homes, um, if they were brought up in the Christian faith, learned about the lives of the great saints of the church and learned about the lives of the apostles and obeyed that scriptural injunction we just read um, to imitate the lives of these great leaders of faith. But now we cast all of that aside because it's old fashioned. And we look for different kinds of heroes. Um, there's a whole uh, rabbit hole I'd love to go down, but I'm gonna resist, about heroic children's literature. Uh, many of us grew up on tales that were full of Christian virtues and the fruit of the Spirit being modeled by the protagonist in these stories. And now children are brought up without that, uh, brought up on dystopian children's literature that's full of despair and the narrative of this age. So this horror of the same old thing is something we need to look in the mirror, see if we've caught a case of that virus, and if so, take the antidote, which is to live richly and fully into the great heritage we have in the Christian faith. Fifthly, and these last two are really related to the fourth one, be wary of adopting fashions, especially spiritual ones, that may blind you to the true dangers of your time. And here, Jesus speaks to this in Matthew 6, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then, that which you think is light within you is darkness, how great is the darkness. And then a little longer on in Matthew in chapter 23, that great chapter where Jesus points out the Pharisees' uh, fatal flaws, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Ouch. Well, this is really important. Jesus talks about the eye of your body. This means the lens through which you view life. And what he's saying is if it's healthy, that means if you have a Christian worldview, you are filtering everything through the kingdom of God and scriptural truth, your eye is healthy and you'll be able to see well and know what's real and right and true and what isn't. But if you let your eye, if you let your lens get clouded by the spirit of the age, you can be very sincere and passionate and wrong because the light within you is not light at all, but darkness. And Jesus is saying the same thing here about the Pharisees, that they've gotten so focused on obedience to a little small area of the law that they are overcome by ignoring things that are the heart and core of what it means to follow God, justice and mercy and faithfulness. 
And then that frightening line, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. I will leave it to you to think about what are the issues that we get so worried about today in the church while leaving other issues that were dear to Jesus's heart that are at the core of the Christian faith unthought about, untalked about, and not even on our radar screen. This is something that is vitally important for us as Christians to get our heads around and to repent because otherwise we will be shouting through a megaphone at a world that doesn't want to hear a word we have to say. And then sixth, resist discarding the wisdom of the past for in favor of ideas whose only virtue is that they are new or progressive. We are all too quick to be people that buy into the cultural myth that something is better just because it is new. Uh, this is the whole idea of progress, that inexorable train of progress uh, linked to evolutionary thought that we're getting better and better generation after generation. And if we just get a little smarter and a little better educated, we're going to solve all the problems of the world and utopia will result. Now, of course, the problem with this is every generation has believed this, and uh, it has been proven fatally wrong time and time again. But many of us, even as Christians, still believe it. Lewis also uses the same principle to attack what is wrong in the fields of literature and architecture uh, with this focus on originality. The whole idea that classic works of the past are to be ignored because in some sense they must not be valuable. Uh, anyone that writes like that or follows rules or uh, anything like that is said to be derivative. And what you really want is something that's original, new, a new contribution, a new way of seeing, and that is ipso facto better. And Lewis, in his great essay, De Descriptione Temporum, that he delivered when he started his professorship at Cambridge, talks about this and that the great danger of this industrial technological age in which we live is that in that age, newer usually is better. That the new microchip is infinitely better than the one 20 years ago. The new television is infinitely better than the one from the 1950s. And the problem is that we see progress in those areas and we look at how clunky and out of date and somehow ridiculous some of those old inventions seem. And we take that lens and apply it to everything else, to our faith, to human thought, to works of creativity, to the eye of beauty, the idea of beauty, all of those things. And Lewis says that is so dangerous. The scripture here is so important. First from James 3. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And then from Galatians 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. What we see in these scriptures is that this problem of discarding the wisdom of the past in favor of what's new and novel has pervaded the church from the earliest days. And it is dangerous. It is demonic. 
It is unspiritual. It brings jealousy, strife, and selfish ambition. But the word of God, the wisdom of God, is peaceable, full of fruit of the Spirit, and we might also say enduring from generation to generation. My friends, there's so much to chew on in this letter. I commend it to your contemplation. Uh, I will send some articles for you who are scuba diving to go along with this that I will commend to you as well. Let's close by reading that great little excerpt from letter eight. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we confess to you how often we are prone to embrace the things of this world and the attitude of this world and the horror of the same old thing. Lord, we pray that you would tune our hearts, that you would attune our ears to wisdom, and that we would see the beauty and the unchanging truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit and of the unchanging and life-giving Trinity, the fountain of love at the center of the universe so that we might live lives not according to the pattern of this world, but according to the pattern of the kingdom of God. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us. I look forward to seeing you again virtually and hopefully sometime soon in person. God bless you.